Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Grima. I'm Sam. I'm Alvin. And I am the only one with a last name anymore. I, <laughs> I know we were being all cool and familiar with the audience. I would have just been Chris. Um, but no, actually, I, I prefer my, my classically standoffish personality. I, I prefer the full, the full name, Mr. Martin, actually. Moving on. And today we are running through some of the headlines this week from the continued response to the coronavirus to the end of Ontario's much beloved blue license plates. Lots has, ha- lots has happened this week. But first, the most important story of the day. Happy birthday, Grima. Happy birthday. The best way to celebrate uh, <laughs> one's birthday, talking about all of the interesting policy developments and potential devastating impacts of a deadly virus uh, in our society. Happy birthday from us. Thanks for setting the tone for the rest of the year, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe just we just dive right into the year that has begun. Uh, I want to take us into some of the comments the Premier this made this week in response to testing results. So, of course, as many people know, rapid widespread testing for everyone, not just those with symptoms, is key to controlling the spread of the virus and reopening the economy. If we can't see it, we can't plan for it. And so back in April, Doug Ford committed to getting 16,000 tests a day done by May 6th. He had actually been exceeding that total just extremely recently with 17,000 tests done on Sunday, May 3rd. However, on Monday, the numbers fell again to around 10,000. And the premier had some harsh words for public health officials saying that some local public health officials have been falling behind, specifying that half of the province's 34 regional health officers were doing great, while others were a ski slope down. Uh, An interesting sort of bracketed, uh, he actually did say this, you know who you are. So he went on to say that he was going to call them, that we needed to hold them accountable, that they'd better have a good excuse and that uh, to make his sort of like he's just so like Canadian in his colloquialisms like you needed to pull up their sock. So in response to this, the opposition jumped all over it, saying with testing, the buck stopped for the premier, that the issues are Doug Ford's fault. The premier's office later explained that he was referring to long-term care testing specifically, where provincial public health units were in charge of testing, and that they have been given the tools, and that he is just frustrated at the lack of progress there and not in fact blaming local leaders. I'll just say that the long-term care issue has also not been great for the government or anyone in a long-term care facility right now with nearly 80% of the deaths in the province happening in long-term care homes, sparking a cry for a public inquiry. The premier has has said he's going to fix it. So I guess the question here is, last week we talked about perhaps the response to the reopening plan being a return to the normal back and forth of Ontario politics. If that was the return to normal, this seems like a regular old bad issues week. How do we think they're doing? How fair do we think the premier's comments were? And what can we read from this sort of moment into their strategy for managing this issue? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the premier has been doing a good job by sort of showing that he is in charge. I think it's sort of convenient to pass the buck, so to speak, on to uh, other public health officials. And, you know, I think the media was asking, why don't you show us the numbers where where are these other places that need uh, more support? And really, what's the government's plan to address it? I think when we were talking about how we're turning, we're, we are returning to politics as normal, um, it'll be really interesting to see uh, our first question period uh, during the crisis, which is going to be coming up next week, um, and what the opposition leaders are going to say to his face. 
because I think there's been a lot of this back and forth. Um, we want to be constructive as opposition leaders. Um, these are the things that you need to do better. But I think the opposition is now sort of tired. Uh, I don't just mean the liberals. I think the NDP are going to jump on him too. And maybe not the Greens, but there's definitely going to be more pointed questions as to how long ago did the premier know that these things have been issues, especially in long-term care homes. Why won't we have an inquiry? Why won't you be as transparent as you say you want to be? Uh, and really starting to uh, hold his feet to the fire. I think the um, back and forth about local public health leaders and, he, you know, uh, Premier Ford has mused about consolidating public health testing centrally and that there, there's too much, too many local leaders. You know, it's it's got an interesting history, right? Like the Liberals did a review of public health in 2017 and recommended consolidation from 36 as it stands now to 14 to align with the boundaries of the local local health integration networks. Those then have now been kind of rolled up, obviously, into the Ontario Health, whatever it's called. And so it kind of has a fascinating history leading up to this pandemic. And, you know, 36 local health units is a lot for a province this size. Like, I think the report that the Liberals had commissioned you know, talked about the difficulty in recruiting uh, medical officers of health to some of the smaller regions, a lot of duplication. So like, it's, it's almost unfair, I think, to be too critical of, you know, the conservatives trying to find their way through rationalizing the system as it existed before this pandemic, of course, layering on, you know, the biggest test of public health in our lifetimes to this system that wasn't really built for it is like from a apolitical perspective, it's it's kind of a unique challenge. So you do kind of feel for them a bit. Whether calling them out publicly makes any sense is a different thing. And didn't they also confirm this week that he's essentially going to want to fold them all uh, into Ontario Health and all report to the same public health officer for the province? He did say that they are looking at the Alberta model, which that approach where there is yeah, multiple regional authorities um, reporting into one uh, one area, which from a planning perspective, I understand. But we are currently sort of debating between like, you know, 10,000 versus 16,000 tests, uh, which is the target that the premier set for uh, the government. We probably need something more closer to the 100,000 tests per day range, at least for a limited time, so we can rapidly test the province in the way that countries like Germany have been able to. That's around the rate that the countries that have really started turning this around have started at. So, you know, one of the things that kind of dismays me is that we're talking about such a, a low and limited range. And you can you can blame system coordination. And I certainly think that there are issues that we've seen in the coordination of the system. But the capacity that we have is uh, for testing in Ontario is nowhere near what it needs to be. And from January to March, they basically needed to move us from uh, the ability to test from 900 tests per day, which is where we were in January, to 3,000, which is where we were sort of at the beginning of this crisis. We've ramped up from a really low point to something that's exponentially larger. And I kind of feel for the folks who are probably working their asses off behind the scenes to grow us to where we need to be with the knowledge that we need to be so much further along than we even are at this growth capacity. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I th- I think the question of capacity is really important to think about because it's one thing to 
figure out your supply chain for tests and procure enough tests. And there's another thing to be able to go through to having the capacity at labs, which they do currently for increased capacity to actually process those tests. And then I think most importantly, because this is what testing tells us, is not just whether the person being tested is um, has COVID or not, but it also the public and effective public health response to that is then contact tracing and being able to find who that individual or patient might be and who they've actually interacted with or may have come in or may have exposed the virus to. And so that part of capacity and the importance of contract tracing is really important. There's lots of questions that that people are grappling with right now around privacy considerations and the role of technology versus public health units. But I think that as we think about, about the importance of testing so that we can really, really start to hone in on where there might be certain focal points of transmission, we also need to think about that that second or third step. And I, do, I just don't know that we're there yet. But I also want to, th- I think that it's also important to think about path dependency, that there's been a series of decisions, not only in the past couple of months, but over the past couple of decades that have led to the situation that we're in. And this question around, is it the public health officials that aren't testing fast enough? Is it the province or is it long-term care homes where we're unfortunately seeing the highest rate of transmission? Is if we focus on long-term care, I think it's really people are starting to sort of get their heads around how different types of care and how different models of care really matter. And what we're seeing in the long-term care sector after decades of not having attention paid to it is that undermining the public and the government's ability to have a strong long-term care sector is really showing how fragile private private care homes are. What the government wants to do beyond that point and beyond this point is anyone's guess. But I think, you know, to turn an entire society from being very skeptical about government's ability to deliver and now wanting the government to take uh, to take an increased role in these these services, I think is great. But we also have to think about that side of the coin. And I just don't know that we're there yet. Maybe a, like a question that I've been sort of musing about. So we were fairly critical um, of the Ontario Health kind of centralized model when we had Dr. Bob Bell on the pod a little while ago. And I'm wondering if like for any of you guys, this experience is whether it's changing anyone on this pod's mind about, you know, a centralized Ontario health authority, recognizing that none of us are are, are health experts. But it seems like picking up what you were saying, Grima, like having things that are centralized government run seem to be much less scary now to people. Like I would like there to be a coordinated central contract tracing and testing system. Yeah, Chris, I don't know that it was wrong for them to do what they did in terms of trying to centralize it. I think we just think that they were trying to do it for the wrong reasons. Um, I think <laughs> he might fall into this, uh, creating a better system and saying, look, we have to centralize. But that wasn't why they wanted to do it. They thought it was overly bureaucratic. They wanted to, um, you know, they thought that uh, the cost of healthcare was inflated. And, and a lot of it is. 
Um, but that was their primary motivator, not to create a better system. One of the things I was always curious about, too, is that when you watch the daily briefings from all the premiers and, and the federal government, you notice that the majority of them, I think every province other than Ontario has their medical officer of health and their premier talk at the same time. And in the federal government, you get that too, other than Justin's sort of daily briefings, then you go to the deputy prime minister and the, the panel of ministers, and then you have the officers of health there with them answering questions. I was wondering whether or not you think it was intentional that Doug Ford and his ministers have not been doing the briefings at the same time as the medical officers so that if at some point they want to pass on blame or whatever it is, they're not as associated with them. I was just sort of like, why wouldn't they just do it at the same time? Why wouldn't you just have the same, you know, political answers and policy answers at the same time? And I've had people comment to me like, why am I watching Doug Ford's briefing? Like a bunch of them, you know, he can't answer and they're going to be political answers versus getting Dr. Williams to tell you what's going on. And then they air Dr. Williams's briefing like an hour later. Um, oh, and he a bunch of questions that the premier or the ministers couldn't answer directly. Mayor Tory doesn't have that. Like no one else is visually distancing themselves from their from their officers. Which, uh, and also interesting because it played itself out into the media coverage this this week because everyone was watching the premier throw basically the whether it be the local or the provincial and now it's sort of unclear to me authorities that were under the bus were testing too slow there was actually in the stars sort of longer form article there was a dr williams was quoted sort of in the middle of it saying that one of the reasons for this like the ramp up is to not overwhelm the testing system because if you have you know if you start ramping up the volume and the system doesn't have the capacity to take it, it actually clouds the data picture, which is, I would imagine, probably pretty dangerous. It was interesting because the headline was all about the premier's comments. And then in the middle of the article, because we know most of society reads the full article in its full text before coming to their opinions, you actually get the medical officers of health explaining you know, a pretty significant system limitation that makes a ton of sense to me, considering that they built this expanded capacity that can do tens of thousands of tests a day in a month like that was february they did that so makes a ton of sense to me that they don't want to overwhelm it and that they need to be careful with it because it's probably held together by duct tape maybe just the last word i'll say about the kind of centralization versus local i think this plays out in tons of ways in public policy right there's like school boards there's um the way that you know universities are governed there's the way that you know police forces are governed like how much authority to rest with local versus provincial or centralized. And I think like in the middle of a pandemic when everyone has to do the, you know, exact same thing, um, there's this um, draw to a centralization. But I guess I just like outside of this context, there's lots of benefits to local understanding, local insight, local leaders, especially in regions that are not where the capital is in Toronto, like in the north and southwestern Ontario, et cetera. Um, and so I think just wanted to like put that in there that like there's a reason these structures were exist in the first place do you know what i mean and yeah. that's fascinating because it seems like doug ford and the progressive considers are now in favor of large provincial governments and less local control which seems to be the opposite of what you would think they would want so 
Um, moving from uh, perhaps the provincial response to the federal for a few minutes, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit has been rolling out across the country after evolving quite substantially um, over the course of its short lifespan. While many worry about the benefit's sufficiency, few have doubted its need as over a million Canadians lost their jobs in March. I don't think we have the numbers for April yet, but I think we are expecting them to be quite eye-popping in terms of the number of Canadians that are now out of work. There is, however, one Canadian who appears to be worrying about it, and that is Andrew Shear, who had this to say about it. In the coming weeks, there will be millions of Canadians who will be forced to choose between returning to work while hoping that there isn't a second wave, even though that will jeopardize their emergency response benefits, or on the other hand, they could wait. And so far, so good. I mean, that is just the real conundrum that is facing people. He then said, at a time when our country needs stimulus, Justin Trudeau has given it a tranquilizer and risk creating labor market shortages across the country. Shear did later tweet that he felt his remarks were mischaracterized and that the Conservatives wanted a progressive approach that weaned people off the benefits as incomes rose. So uh, we had a fantastic episode that Garima uh, put together last week um, on the CERB and the coronavirus response in general on this pod. But wanted to stop here for a minute, talk about this sort of worry, because I think we're going to hear it more and more. It seems like there's more of a space for it. What we think is behind Shear's message, his actual policy advice, and why we think he's taking this particular approach. Yeah, I think that I mean, I've, I'm a bit bewildered by anybody that's talking about stimulus right now, um, because what many economists have talked about over the past couple of months is that this is not a stimulus and really a bridge benefit. We are just trying to get people across the other side of this emergency. And so we have quite deliberately paused or stopped economic activity as much as possible to help prevent people en masse getting sick. And so when you talk about stimulus, you're talking about the the trade of goods and services and ensuring that economic, you know, economic transactions are growing, the number and the value of economic transactions are growing. And that is just not what the CERB was set out to do. And there are other policy instruments that that will be used to do that when we are in a moment of stimulating the economy. I think that, um, you know, while uh, Mr. Scheer might feel that his uh, remarks were mischaracterized, I do think that it's important for us to sort of take stock of how we talk about this problem, this idea that people need to be, quote, and lots of people have said this, need to be weaned off of benefits is incredibly infantilizing and and paternalistic, right? And so we've heard journalists talk about it. We've heard politicians talk about it. And I think that we have to sort of Our economy and labor market today looks nothing like it did in the late 80s, early 90s, when people were really talking about trade-offs between work and and social benefits. Today, uh, or right before the pandemic, we had a labor market that was growing, but with work that really sucked for a lot of people. And what what the pandemic has revealed is that in sectors where work has really sucked um, or been absolutely terrible and precarious are those workers that we actually need to continue to work so that we all can survive. And so when we're thinking about work incentives versus social benefits, I wonder why nobody's actually talking about making work 
I don't mean to say this as a pun, but making work great again. Like, how do you protect labor? How do you protect wages for people? How it's not. So I think we always think about the cuts to social benefits rather than the other side of the coin, which is really about making work good and reasonable and livable and filled with dignity. And that's just not something that that we're talking about. And so I th- I think that there's a lot to be unpacked there when people are talking about what the purpose of CERB is and mischaracterizing it and then um and then not really talking about what's happening in the economy more broadly. And I'll leave it at that. Um I don't have much to add to Grimm's very insightful points. I maybe have like a more crass political um uh, analysis which is the like Andrew Shear going out after and saying like that his views were maybe mischaracterized. It's just like he's one of the worst politicians I've ever seen. Like, what did you expect going out in the middle of a pandemic and calling people lazy, basically, in uh, not so many words, but in saying, you know, we really have to worry about uh, people not wanting to work when, you know, perhaps 20, 30% of the population is sitting at home waiting for opportunities to get back to work. Like, wh- how did you think it was going to land? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just, yeah. um, so like, I, I just <clears throat> continues to find amazing opportunities to put himself back in the news in the worst light. I can't remember the last good day he's had. Um, and if I was the conservatives or anybody trying to support the conservatives, I would just be telling him to shut the fuck up and go away until they finish their leadership race. Like he's actively doing them damage. (laughs) It's wild. Foot in his mouth every single time he opens his mouth. Um, but I mean the the big problem is, and I think this is good because what you're, what you're seeing now is how conservatives think about people on social assistance. And Grima, you're right. It's incredibly infantilizing and paternalistic for them to just be like, you guys are all lazy. This is what they feel, truly feel about people who are on welfare, who are on employment insurance, who are on Ontario Works. They feel like they're just lazy and they're not, you know, they're sitting around doing nothing. Like, well, should I work or should I just sit here and continue to um, collect government checks? Whereas we know that's not true. Right. Everybody who are generally speaking, the people who are on these programs, and I talked a lot about this when we were proposing a basic income, 70 percent of people on social assistance work one, two, three, four jobs. They don't have the resources or the capacity to make enough money to survive. And you're right. The CRB is exactly there to help people maintain their level so that they can continue paying for rent. They can continue buying food because the world is fucking blown up right now and we need to hold people down and, and support them until we can get out of this and being overly concerned about, um, about people sort of enjoying uh, a whopping $2,000 a month, $500 a week is just the exact conservative mindset that drives me crazy. And um, I feel is also mischaracterized by, some of us like like us, because not all of them think like that, right? I mean, you do have Hugh Siegel and other conservatives who say, this is exactly why these programs are here and get beyond your sort of uh, knee-jerk reaction to what you think about people and their behavior and their motivations 
um, because they seem to think the worst out of everybody uh, and see and look at the data and how we can actually help people in a positive way. Like you're right, Alvin, that assumption that people won't, wouldn't want to go back to work is kind of laid bare and the leaving out any thought of maybe making low-wage jobs better um, or in making them not low-wage jobs because we've seen them, how valuable they are, was not there. But he sort of sort of made a conscious attempt to try and move the policy proposal, which would be to sort of make the serve more income contingent away from kind of a, a knee-jerk, you don't need aid, to a, oh, no, no, we just want the aid to be used well. And, you know, we want people to be able to make money and perhaps the, for the benefit to reduce as those incomes rise. That to me is actually a fairly still a fair like the idea of a graded income uh, is still a fairly acceptable idea in 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 policy parlance. And so I was wondering if we could kind of like unpack that a little bit. When CERB started, it was, I think, rightly criticized for having a like a super like you were not allowed to make any income the two weeks before or else you just weren't eligible. And that was seen as way too strict. And so they made this $1,000 cutoff, which doesn't make sense to grade that a little bit, maybe above 100 if you if you have people who start making perhaps significant sums of money as they go as they go back. I mean, we have uh, a lot of income contingent um, government support programs. And even when we were doing the basic income pilot, we had a transition out of the program, which I thought made a lot of sense. I think if you're talking about um, CERB essentially being an income floor for people who are qualified, having a transition out of it as they go back into work is a good idea. I wouldn't take away what they would get as that floor until they eventually transition out of the program. What the basic income pilot in Ontario uh, did was claw back 50 cents on the dollar. So while you were eligible for the program for making less than $17,000 a year, you could essentially still get uh, a dollar of basic income when you were making $33,998. But that helped people transition and encouraged them to continue not that they needed any encouragement because 70% of them were working anyway, uh, but had the had people continue to work while not pulling the rug out from under them, so to speak. Yeah, I think I won't get into the basic income debate, but I think what CERB has really shown is the inadequacy of EI and the complete archaic nature of EI, but also that we've got basic incomes for families with children, and we've got basic incomes for seniors. And what we don't have is a similar income-tested benefit for people that are generally working age. And I recognize that there are many seniors that are also working and receiving seniors' benefits, but for the large part, um, for working age people, there there is no similar benefit. And so what I think the CERB has revealed a for the I think lots of policy people obviously know this but for the the general public it's made that issue very much known and it's also sort of shed light on the ways in which income security programs are developed in the country and so what we've relied um, over relied on social assistance to be that crutch for people who are uh, working age and in need of support and the ways in which um, the fiscal imbalance between the federal government and provincial and territorial government sort of shakes out 
along with this really mean ethos against people living in poverty, is that we've just completely undermined supports for working age individuals. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of debate right now around what um, a renewed income security system looks like for Canada uh, moving forward. But I do think that we need to keep in mind that different populations have different needs and how you address, you know, clawback issues and calculation issues will depend on the the nature of the person or people receiving the benefit, but also what's around them. Right now, we've seen with the CERB that, you know, the CERB is not enough um, for people living in, in large cities where the cost of rent is just so high. And so can you, how do you develop an income security system that not only takes into account cash transfers, but also these other things that people need, like housing, like access to medicines, is really, really important. And until we wrap our heads around that, I think going back to the ways in which people thought about cash transfers in the 90s, or very much in the same way that the United States is talking about them today, is antiquated and will not respond to the issues that workers are going to face post-pandemic. Yeah, and I, I I don't see Andrew Shear pushing for uh you know, well we income test it. Let's also make sure it's affordable in different markets with different price points. Um, that is not where I see him coming from. Uh, so maybe to close us off today, friends, I have a tragic story to tell you about a government who tried to change the province's license plates to be more like the color of the Conservative Party than they already were. Uh, we discussed. On a previous pod, how the province tried to roll out new plates, which were all blue, with a slogan, a new slogan, a place to grow. Um, we discussed how it was noticed after these were rolled out. They had a ref- certain reflective quality to them that prevented police from taking pictures, essentially turning your car into a potentially perfectly legal crime mobile. Um, and uh, we discussed how the minister responsible called the old plates liberal plates, saying that they needed to be changed and a pledge to work with manufacturer 3M to fix them. Side note, is there anything in this in this world that 3M does not manufacture? I'm convinced that whoever runs 3M is actually the most powerful person in the world. But I digress. The Ford government has backed off uh, after questioning from reporters this week. The premier confirmed that they would be returning to the white and blue plates that we are used to. Uh, They'll be keeping a place to grow as the slogan, but uh, we'll be in the world of the old plates. So I just want to take a second to maybe take a moment to eulogize them, appreciate them for all they did for us, and ask for any thoughts as they pass on into history. Keep If you have an old blue plate, they're still legal. So keep them. They're going to be collector's items. And, and the supposed liberal plates, you know, were obviously introduced by the Davis government, the, you know, the staunch liberal Bill Davis. Uh, as he was uh, obviously known in the day. <laughs> I'm just sad because I think if they had proceeded, which I'm obviously was wise that they abandoned this, I think it would have been such a nice reminder every day as people drove around of the incompetence of this government. So it's it's too bad that they've wisened up, but um, an amusing tale. I will just say that I uh, appreciated the exasperated tone that the uh, premier used to answer the reporter questions being like uh, a big vibe of why are you still asking me about this? We have bigger things to deal with, which, you know, I actually I, I, I agree. The premier may have noticed, like many of us, that in 
taking up so much airtime, the license plates potentially distracted us from many other horrible things the government was doing. So, you know, now that the planes aren't an issue, maybe we'll have more time to focus on all of the uh, cuts that they're still implementing and stuff like that. So that one's for you, Alexi. And I think that's it for us today, friends. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week, as always, still recording these bi-weekly pods. I kind of like in this rhythm that we have now where it's like one kind of deep dive, one kind of newsy. Let us know what you think at Loud or OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be having author David Mosscrop on the pod. Uh, David is the author of a book called Too Dumb for Democracy that I am really enjoying. It'll be the second installment of Loud Reads, Ontario Loud's own book club. Stay excited for that. Have a great weekend. Do I need to tell you who Ontario Loud is? I probably do, because I do every episode. It's myself, Chris Martin, Green Mattel Kapoor, Sam Andry, Alvin Tejo, Alexi White, Aisha Anwar, and Harmon Mundy do our socials and some of our research. It's going to be great. Have a great weekend.